Hello and welcome to Filmwalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. Joining us this week is uh, our special recurring guest host, Erica Spoden. Welcome. Thank you for having me. This week we're going to be checking out a couple of films, including the brand new film, uh, the debut feature from uh, writer-director Emerald Fennell, and that is called Promising Young Woman, uh, which drops, I believe, on Christmas Day this year. But first, we're going to be checking out a film from earlier in this year. This was the toast of the Telluride and Sundance Film Festivals. It was one that a few critics got screeners of right before COVID happened. And I knew a bunch of people who were sitting under embargo for like for like six months when this uh, before this thing finally dropped on premium VOD back in July. That movie is First Cow and is from director Kelly Reichert. What's your name? King Lou. They call me Cookie. My mother died when I was born, and then my father died. I never stopped moving. It's the getting started that's the puzzle. No way for a poor man to start. You have a cow. First cow in the territory. It's ain't a place for cows. No, it's no place for a white man either. I sense opportunity here. That was from the trailer of First Cow, the new film from Kelly Reichert, starring John Magaro, Orion Lee, and Toby Jones. This film features uh, a Pacific Northwest of 1820. The country is a mere 50 years old or thereabouts, and uh, not even 50 years old, and the Oregon Territory uh, is being settled for the first time. They arrive with fur trappers and various uh, fortune seekers who are looking to mine that soft gold, um, the uh, beaver pelts and uh, other, uh, other wild creatures that are in the vicinity that are uh, the toast of Paris fashion to be made into hats in the old world by mining the uh, the living resources of the new. So, Daniel, I'm betting you have some strong feelings about that, but uh, that is, in fact, the backdrop of the Pacific Northwest in the early days. There wasn't really... That was the, the resource crunch that drove those first pioneers out here. Go ahead and hand-wave away all those uh, abuse. Yeah, that's <laughs> Well, the past is another planet. It's interesting, though, the... Uh, this film turns its lens onto a part of, uh, let's say, the Old West that we don't we don't usually see. First, it's not California. We're not looking at men with guns, and, for the most part, and we're uh, and we're not looking at a specific thirty year period following the California Gold Rush. So, at the very least, this feels like a peek into the West that we haven't really seen before. So, uh, on that basis alone, I was already pretty intrigued by this premise. But it becomes the small scale little tale of uh, friendship between a couple of people basically thrown together through random circumstances. Uh, this is Otis Cookie Figowitz, played by John Magaro, and King Lou, played by Orion Lee. And let's just say a scheme that they hatched together, involving the first cow ever to come to the Oregon Territory. So, uh, Daniel and Erica, I'll put it to you. Um, Daniel, you seemed like you had some strong feelings about this film, so let's start with you. I don't know if they were strong so much as that they were immediate and long-lasting. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would say that... You sold this movie to me as it's about a cow. Uh, what I, what I said exactly was it's about a motherfucking cow. And so I got excited about a movie about a cow because cows are horribly treated by, by people and have been for a long time now. And I thought, oh, an inspirational movie about a cow in the uh, frontier land. That sounds pleasant. That sounds like something 2020 like light for me, right? 36 minutes into the movie, that's when I see the cow, Glenn. That's the first glimpse of the cow. Instead, what we get is this 
meet cute between two Kendrick Spirits and they play house in Oregon. I don't care about Oregon. I've been to Oregon. It's a crappier version of Washington. <laughs> the fact that I'm stuck with Cookie Fickowicz and King Lou as they hatch like probably the dumbest scheme I think I've ever heard. I enjoyed the film for its simplicity because everything in Oregon is very simple. I didn't appreciate it for the exploitation of living creatures. I didn't appreciate it for how boring (laughs) that second half of the film was. And the fact that you lied to me repeatedly about the fact that the movie was about a cow. Daniel, (laughs) I'm going to push back on some of this later. But first, I just want to say... Were you not swayed in the least by the fact that I I would say a good 50% of the screen time featuring Evie the Cow, who is credited as Evie the Cow, uh, featured uh, the character of Cookie Figowitz just whispering sweet nothings into her ear and telling her what a good cow she was. And how sorry he was that she'd lost her family. It was so sweet. So nice. As he takes away her resources so that he can craft some baking scheme. Yeah, you know what? That dude could have... I, we'll get into it in spoilers, but there's a very simple way that they could have made it so everybody wins in this. <laughs> and they didn't do it, and the stakes could never be lower. Erica, what did you think of the film? I liked it. I enjoyed that it was quiet and kind of distracting, and like there were like there's some just nice moments in it. And you know, as you said, Glenn, it's certainly nice to see like a a western that isn't all about. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, it's certainly about like territory and conquest. I don't think you can make a western without that. But it was like the the stakes were just different. Um, you know, I enjoy I enjoyed that you know these two kind of outcasts were able to you know become friends and that Evie had such beautiful eyes and um, I, I look, I, I think she's really going places and I don't just mean out to pasture. I, I think she could, I think she's, um, she's tasted the, the good life now and I hope she can keep acting. It's a show cow. Yeah. We need a Disney princess who is a cow. We uh, do we need to get that trending on, uh, on Twitter. So Daniel, uh, I have a couple of beefs with what you had to say. Not you I, always do. Oh, Glenn. Couple of beefs, really? You said that you said that Oregon. Oh, nicely done. Um, you said that Oregon is like Washington, but shittier. And I'm not going to argue even a little bit about that. <laughs> Thank uh, you. But the, it's it's obviously true. Um, but the uh, but you have to you have to understand. I was coming at this from a place of we're looking at a piece of Pacific Northwest history here, and obviously this is based on a novel. It's not a uh, it, it's not it's not history per se, but it is a plausible event that must have happened at some point during this period of time, even if not this specific period of events, this specific scheme involving these people. Oregon looks like that now. Well, I mean, it was shot in Oregon now, so of course <laughs> it looks like that now. The, the little frontier village is basically Portland, so. <laughs> We used to go down to a place called Pioneer Farms uh, in uh, elementary school, which is down around Graham, Washington or somewhere thereabouts. And it's just sort of a a half-hearted Pioneer village. But that's kind of my that's kind of my image of pioneer life is it's informed heavily by survivorship bias the people that were there to tell stories were either wealthy um, or they were sort of well situated as far as resources went so we think of this sort of bucolic cottage core life with like butter churns everywhere and and uh, you know Laura Engels Wilder describing how beautiful the uh, the little cakes they managed to make over the fire were and you realize like oh this was a situation where one bad winter could make them all starve to death so and and most of the comforts of 
just the creature comforts they were used to were absent because there was no infrastructure for any of them. There was nothing supporting any of that. The civilization that was there was not recognized by them as civilization. It was the people who lived there before they got there. So all they were looking to do was figure out how to recreate their life back home out here on the frontier. And as a result of that, pioneer life is inherently high stakes because you're all alone out there and it's all about what whatever relationships you have with the people around you is the only that's the only thing that's going to keep you alive so when i see these two guys becoming friends through pure happenstance i'm just like oh good they've got somebody to look out for each other right and all of a sudden that that's immediate stakes right there erica back me up on that this isn't australia they didn't get deported there they chose to go there to make a fortune so the fact that they're having like a not so great time is not my problem. Cookie Figowicz is from Maryland. You know what he could do? Go back to Maryland. <laughs> oh, Daniel, have you been to Maryland? I haven't. No, I won't go any further south than New York. I mean, I, I don't entirely agree with that. I feel like, you know, they both kind of ended up there because they had, I mean, you know, especially being from Maryland, literally like nowhere else to fall to. And... You know, in the case of King Lou, I mean, it sounded like he was getting away from a much worse situation. You know, he it's it seemed that he'd kind of like found a peace by the time he got to Oregon. I was I was okay with that. It's not always like the buccaneering adventuring types that find themselves in the frontier. Like it offered opportunities for everyone. And I think it was kind of nice not to see just grandiose bullshit and tavern room brawls like, you know, these were they felt like more real people. Well, yeah, this, this movie did not shy away from the violence inherent in the uh, in, in a frontier lifestyle. I mean, the, King Lou is introduced because he's running from Russians who want to murder him. Uh, after having killed one of his friends, they they gutted him from you know taint to sternum, and uh, because they because they thought he was a thief or something like that, he shot one of them, and now they they're coming after him. And the movie somewhat elides this point, but because the Russians were were considered white, and the uh, and King Lou is not the people that he ran into immediately. Uh, immediately believed him and and I think that the film does not shy away from issues of race in the same way that I think other westerns do other westerns simply don't discuss it they uh, they just have everyone be white and they never bring up race in any meaningful way with the exception of any any Indian uh, tribes that might be in the area who are treated as uh, as monolithic threats um, or there might be like one good one who's your friend you know it's not a there it's not treated like a fully realized world. It's just treated like this outpost of white people amid the savages. And this movie just very casually did not feel like it was trying to be that. It felt like it was like, oh, there were, even though Oregon was founded as an, even though Oregon, Oregon Territory and the Oregon State Constitution were, were eventually founded uh, with the exclusion of black people written into their state constitution, we do see a black man at one point. He's not a major character. He's got maybe one line of dialogue. We meet him. He's there. We see a number of, uh, of local Indians there. Chief Factor, uh, uh, Toby Jones's character, apparently has married one of them yeah. um, and has her acting as his translator. So there's, there's, there are kind of these racial undertones to it as well um, that it doesn't shy away from. But it's also not really about that. Um, those issues are simply present, and it makes the world feel a little bit more fully realized than I think some other Westerns that I've seen. Yeah, that is encapsulated in uh, the first meeting between Figowicz and, uh, and King Lou. Where he's you know he's like oh are you Native American and, and you know King Lu says no I'm Chinese and King Lu didn't follow up with like that's really problematic that you thought I was Native American let's talk about this and your white and your white you know supremacy issues like there's like oh no I'm Chinese and he's like oh 
I'm from Maryland, and then they become friends. So, like, they address it, but then they don't, like, belabor the point, right? Well, King Lou's a pretty interesting character, too, because he's been a world traveler prior to this. He's clearly a bit of a polyglot. He's He's been to all different places. He's picked up languages. He's picked up information. And he feels very worldly. Um, but he also feels like he's a, he's opportunistic. He's there to he's there to colonize. He's there to be a capitalist. He's there to make money. He's there to make his fortune. And um, you know he he says a lot of things like history isn't here yet. It's coming, but we got here early this time, and maybe this time we can be ready for it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dismiss all the Native Americans <laughs> that lived there for years. Sure, buggy. I I don't think it is unreasonable for anybody who is coming to this uh, to this area to uh, with with these purposes in mind to have this attitude. It was uh, of course we can look back at. It, we can look at this and judge it as people from the 21st century, but uh, it, it feels perfectly authentic to me. And I, I like seeing, I like seeing, I don't know, a more fully realized version of that or a version of that that relies on more than just, I walked a really long way to get here from the East. Uh, King Lou feels like, you know, he comes from an area in China where, where he's hated in kind of the port cities. He was up in the, he comes from the Northern areas of China and uh, he's hated down in Canton, which I think is where Hong Kong is, is now. Um, yes. Sounds right. Yeah, I mean, they use contemporaneous terminology, so I'm not totally sure on that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is a guy who clearly is has some means at his disposal, but also doesn't really have a place to, to call home. So um, I'm used to meeting a character like that in a Western and seeing, like, oh, this guy's obviously got an ulterior motive here. But no, it, like, the friendship really is exactly what it seems to be. It's just these two guys who end up being kindred spirits and end up striking up this bond, so... And then, like, the skills that they each have managed to, like, balance each other out. I mean, it was kind of like a Oregon Territory odd couple, except that there's no, like, oh, isn't it hilarious that Felix never cleans up after himself? And I, I may have mixed up which one is which, but uh, you you knew what I meant. Yeah, I mean, King Lou has an eye for business and for strategy. And uh, and Cookie, well, he's the Cookie, He's uh, which apparently is, was a term in the, in the fur wrangling crew uh, for the person who's responsible for getting their food. It's a nice detail there that at one point we see uh, we see Totilicum, who is a local uh, tribal elder of some sort, uh, comment in his native tongue that uh, he finds it he finds it funny that the white people never eat the beaver's tail; they just leave it to rot in the woods because that's where all the good meat is. Mm. Yeah, it's really funny. But uh, anyway, folks, I think we really need to get into spoilers here before we get, before we uh, get into this any further. We haven't even talked about the nature of the scam, and I don't feel like we can until we uh, until we do that. So, uh, any any final thoughts before we get into spoilers? This is a film about friendship in Oregon that has nothing to do with coffee or cheese in Portland. At one point, brunch patisserie does serve an important plot point, but I, I hear you. It does, but but you know, it's it's primarily just a story of like friendship. I watched it and felt temporarily better about the world. Um, so yeah, I mean, it la it lasted six minutes, but they were a good six minutes. Daniel, any final thoughts before you get into spoilers? Two bros play house, and a poor cow is fondled. <laughs> All right, from here on out, spoilers for first cow. I'm sorry, Daniel, did you have any more there? No, no, I think I summed okay. it up nicely. All right, from here on out, spoilers for first cow. So we see Evie the cow arrive on a, uh, a little raft uh, coming up the, either the Columbia or the Willamette River. It was unclear. They were somewhere in that zone right on the border between Washington and Oregon where eventually the town of Portland would be founded. And 
they see the cow arrive, and we hear uh, we hear uh, you and Bremer's character brag that it is the first cow in the territory. And this is the moment where Cookie realizes, oh, I don't have to make soda bread anymore. I don't have to make you know vinegar cakes or whatever the hell. Oh, uh, God forbid know. we have a vegan recipe. Yeah, no, no more flour and water bread. I can make actual. I can make actual biscuits here. And uh, this is one of the areas in which I think uh, the whole not shying away from race thing worked in the movie's favor. Uh, because King Lou immediately realizes, oh, we can make these biscuits by just milking this cow at night. You know, we sneak in, to, sneak in there, get the milk, make the biscuits. But we'll never have to explain how it is we were able to make these without any milk. Because I'll just couch it all in an ancient Chinese secret. And that was brilliant. Um, as far as uh, just being able to sort of hand wave away their ability to create these oily cakes. It was curious. The first time they made them, they were they looked like biscuits from KFC. I mean, they looked just so perfectly formed. And every subsequent time, they were frying them in, they were pan frying them in oil over the fire. Uh, and then handing them directly to people, drizzling honey on them. I mean, they looked very good, but they were they were definitely different dishes each time. Um, but th- but that's their that's their premise. They're going to milk the cow at night. They're going to make as many uh, as many of these biscuits as they can, and they're going to they're going to they're going to mine the miners, as they say. Uh, this is a term from the uh, from the founding of Seattle days as well. Many of our biggest uh, drug stores and uh, and and department stores to this day, uh, Nordstrom uh, among others, uh, came from supplying the Yukon Gold Rush. And uh, they figured out, oh, these guys want to be able to eat something that doesn't taste like hardtack, and uh, we, you know, they'll 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 buy it for for whatever money they have in their pocket, and and that turned out to be true. So, folks, uh, what do we think about the biscuit scam? Well, I mean, it's it's not bright. Um, I I was actually really disappointed because I thought from the beginning, and by that I mean, so from the first time that you know Toby Jones' character tries one, and says, you know. I taste London in this cake. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. I actually kind of thought that he knew from then. It was just like, you know what? I, it's it's fine. You know, like, whatever. You've put my milk to good use. I'm not going to begrudge you that. So I was actually, like, really disappointed in how stupid he turned out to be. I thought he was just kind of like, ah, eh, whatever. It's fine. I'm like a, I'm a, I may be a, a chief, like, figure, but I, I, I have a streak of benevolence and, and whatever. I, I don't know why I thought that. I just... Hoped he wouldn't be so stupid, but you know, whatever. I guess if people don't make their own food, they they wouldn't think about what would probably have to go into it. Yeah, I mean, he's presented as as sort of a thuggish capitalist, but he's also presented as sort of a pampered dandy who doesn't really think about where things come from. So he's kind of simultaneously both. This is a guy who can't imagine being stolen from because uh, because the very idea of being stolen from, while it's something that that, that would be. It would fit perfectly well into the environment that he is now in. It would not fit perfectly well into the old world environment that he came from in the first place. He's just not streetwise at all, or in this case, woodswise. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, the idea of not just being able to call the bobbies in to uh, sort things out, or being able to sort of strike a bargain with uh, with somebody who it turns out has been stealing a small amount of milk from you every night. Uh, he just has to resort to uh, to to violence. He has to say, "Oh nope, this has to end." Even though they're making better use of my milk than I am. <laughs> Um, I can't figure out any way to make this right, or these guys owe me a debt, or now they work for me. This guy couldn't even be mafia about it. Why do you say it was a better use of the milk than what he would have used it for? I mean, I think what he would have used it for was dumping it on the ground for the most part. Didn't he just have it for tea? No, he was going to use it to make, uh, to put in his tea, and uh, use for cakes and whatnot around his household. Isn't it not the cow his property, Glenn? Uh, 
Daniel, I don't think we ever got any inkling that he was going to do any baking whatsoever with it. He just wanted milk in his tea. That was the only thing they ever said about it. Uh, I don't think anybody in his house knew how to make any, any of that stuff. So what, why is that less useful than making biscuits? Uh, I would say it's a uh, it's it's less productive. Uh, no, it's also, no, it also just, requires just less it. milk. Just it doesn't, it. Take, just doesn't take much to flavor your tea. You simp for capitalism. Just say it. <laughs> just, just like that. It's, it's fine. I'm going to go with the John Lockean view here, which is that adding labor to the resource uh, confers a, confers a measure of ownership upon it, and it also improves the productivity of it. I may be mixing Adam Smith in there as well, but probably. <laughs> well, here's what they should have done: they should have approached Mister Factor and said, "Hey, we'll give you a cut of all our business proceeds for using some of the milk your cow produces." They come to an agree upon amount per night that they're allowed to take. And then everybody wins. Yeah, I mean, they probably could have uh, come up with some sort of scheme where they never had to admit stealing from him in the first place. They could have said, oh, we brought a small amount of milk with us, but we've now used all that up. But we see you have this fine cow. If you want more of these biscuits, let's make a deal. Like you can imagine a version of this where everybody at least is able to lie to themselves a little bit about what happened there. And maybe the thievery stops and a business bargain is struck. But this is not that movie. I don't know, it's still the untamed frontier. No, it's just two characters being stupid. Let's <laughs> just be honest. Like, Well, being stupid, but also like seeing an opportunity and taking it. Was it a good opportunity? I mean, no, but I for one really enjoyed the idea of watching someone make a clafoutis over a camp stove. Because like, I've made clafoutis. And it's not hard, but I couldn't make it in a skillet outside. Well, he went to baking school. That was probably the most impressive thing in the entire movie. <laughs> like, I hear that's one of the mini games in Red Dead Redemption 2, is you make like a bear stew over the fire. You have to gather all the ingredients together. And yes, Daniel, kill a bear. Wow. Um, and probably only use a fraction of its meat inefficiently. <laughs> you, you really just enjoy exploit, you know, exploiting like resources, don't you? I mean, I don't enjoy it so much as I recognize the circumstances under which it is likely. Like, when you read about the Yukon Gold Rush, you just get, like, this warm feeling in your loins <laughs> when you think about those men just digging into that dirt. Not really, because I've read enough about it to know that most of the people who went up there did not get much gold out of it. It was the sort of thing that was captured early on by the big-time business people. Right, but the ones who didn't got all the money, doesn't that really just, like, excite you? Ooh, that could be me. Let me, let me tell you what I saw in the, in the last half of this movie. You, you said you found that, that portion of it boring, and I obviously can't make you feel any differently about that. But, but try. I found the unrelenting tension involved with, we don't know how dangerous the Sky Chief Factor is. We don't know what he's going to send his men to do. We don't know. We don't even really know who the two bodies that, uh, that Aaliyah Shokat finds at the beginning of the film. Uh, we don't even know who they are. Like, oh, it could be our two are. main characters, but it might not. Like, Or it could be one of them and then one of the bad guys. Or we, we, do, we just don't know. So there is a certain amount of tension over what the conclusion of the story is going to be. And using that framing device of we're, sit, we're standing by the Columbia River watching a container ship go by. I mean, what, I'll put it to you guys. What did you think was the purpose of, uh, of, of seeding that bit right now? Of acknowledging from the outset, this is the present day and these people are dead already and they possibly died violently <laughs> because here are their bodies, uh, you know, never found by the Columbia River. What, are, what did you think was the purpose of that storytelling wise? I actually thought there was something kind of peaceful about the bodies at the beginning. You know, it's it's not like in Stand By Me where you find a body and it's automatically like, you know, it's going to be the thing that ends up like weirdly destroying this foursome of close friends. There was something kind of more... 
you know, more like the bodies that have been found at Pompeii that were, you know, like together. And it was oh, kind of like, comparison. sure, not a great way to go, but at least they had each other. You know, like there's something okay with that. It would have been a lot sadder if it had been just a single body. And you, you see the way that they kind of drift off together, like while sleeping on a log. It's a really companionable image. And, you know, just... It's sad that they didn't have a better run, that they never made it to San Francisco. Although, I mean, I can tell them San Francisco isn't that great. So, you know, I mean, they might have been spared something. I'll tell you what it did for me, seeing those bodies at the beginning. It it created this image of, you know, it's, it's sort of a feeling of history as us standing on the shoulders of giants, but in this case, standing on the bones of many dead people. Well, sure. And uh, the idea of, I think your your comparison to the bodies at Pompeii is a profound one because... I see something like that. I'm not broken up about the fact that they're dead. They would have been dead regardless. This is so long ago. I'm so disconnected from these events. But uh, but I am still curious. And a lot of times that history is just unknowable. And all you're doing is just imagining what sort of lives these people might have had. There was a uh, there was a children's book. It was like a children's picture book that I read as a child. And it was about a uh, there was some sort of civilizational collapse in the United States. And it features an archaeologist named Howard Carter, uh, named after the guy who, tra- who discovered Tutankhamun's tomb mm-hmm. in the 1930s, I believe. Um, and he's he's excavating. uh uh, it's Motel of the Mysteries. That's what it's called. He's excavating an old motel, and he finds a couple that are lying in the bed in front of the TV, and he's just making all of these completely wrong guesses as to why they were there, what purpose the TV was for, what what, what all the objects in the room were for. And it was meant to kind of seed this idea in your head as a kid, like, oh, we don't really know what happened in history. We, like, we, we, can, we can guess, but we're only getting a tiny fraction of that information. So setting up these two bodies... I can imagine a, an entire sequence of scenes in the present day where the police are called out, eventually archaeologists are called out once they realize it's not anything recent, and they try to figure out who these people are and how they died, but they don't, like, they can maybe figure out a cause of death, but they can't figure out the circumstances of the of right. death. So we're seeing almost forbidden knowledge here in this story. We're seeing we're seeing a story that would never be told. We're seeing a story that would never be recorded. So, I don't know, it, it made the entire thing feel a bit more profound to me, especially because we've spent all this time getting to know these guys and watching them become these kind of warm friends. So, I'm kind of with you. Even though we know they die violent deaths, it still felt very peaceful seeing their bodies by the river. Yeah. And as for your question about the container ship, um, I mean, when that's like the first thing in the movie, I remember actually being kind of confused. I was like, wait a minute, this doesn't look like 1820 at all. I used to the see the- ships look totally different back <laughs> I used to see those ships go by my office in Elliott Bay. But I think maybe the reason for it is just to suggest, you know, a certain continuity in things. I mean, Evie the cow makes her voyage up on a ship. You know, the story of development in the West is very much related to commerce. Look at how these trade routes, you know, began and how they continue and how much of daily life, even though we don't think about it, is kind of like dictated by just getting things that are wanted from one place to another. Yeah, I think it also, and this is another way in which it made the third act more more interesting for me, was it created kind of a sort of Damocles hanging over them the entire time, but it also made their hubris that much more tragic as I was watching it play out, because I didn't know for sure that they were both going to die. I, I thought it was a possibility, of course, but... I just wanted they kept talking about each one of them at different times had different notions about when they could leave, when they should leave. Mm-hmm. We've got enough money now. We should go now. But they never both came to that idea at the same time until it was too late. And when it fails, it's for just the dumbest reasons possible. It's dumb, random reasons. Yeah. And even then, if they had managed to escape with their money, they would have been okay. Nobody's going to send a fucking posse after them over a couple of stolen quarts of milk. 
except maybe Chief Factor. <laughs> but like, <laughs> if they'd made it down the coast, that would have been it for them, and this would have just been a happy little story for them. And that makes their death that much more tragic, in my view, because they were killed for nothing. They were killed for stolen milk. It feels simultaneously brutal, but also kind of uh, kind of quaint and peaceful at the same time. It's a, it's a blend of tones I wouldn't have thought was possible. You haven't said much in a while there, Daniel. I'm just listening to you guys, you know, talk about the, the third act of the film. You obviously did not feel similarly. I think Erica's point on uh, Pompeii is is very accurate. That was kind of my read as well when they were uncovering the bodies, the way that they're kind of like they're holding hands. It felt like, you know, they, they disappeared in an instant, right? And that they were just, you know, caught off guard. It, it didn't seem like a brutal death, even though in reality that they're, they're uh, presumably shot and killed. Or maybe Cookie died, like, of, of his uh, head wound and then, uh, you know, King was, was shot. In any case, their pose together was, uh, it felt peaceful. The third act of the film, I guess, didn't understand why they just didn't run. Like, how do you not get away? There's, like, one town. And endless woods. Just <laughs> run. <laughs> You're gonna be fine. Well, it was definitely. I mean, Cookie's head injury didn't didn't help. I mean, I think Correct. they probably would have been able to get away if not for if not for that. But uh, well, what's what's strongly implied as well is that either of them could have gotten away if they had not been so interested in finding the other one. It was their, right. It was their their affection for each other that ultimately doomed them. Which obviously, like. Baxter fault, right? Like, well, it makes it all terribly sad, but it, no, it was a situation of their you go, own making. You go into the frontier, you know what the frontier is like. It's every man for themselves, okay? Alliances are short-lived, and they're supposed to be betrayed. Well, that's and how and yet, you know, they, they clearly had a lot of faith in each other. I mean, maybe they were just thinking, you know, like, remember at the first meet, you know, and King Lu is like shivering and starving in the woods and you know cookie takes pity on him and you know brings him bread and something to drink and a blanket and then you know it's because of him that he survives so maybe they just thought you know what our our paths go together so we have to find each other yeah totally uh what i didn't understand was the money right like so the the, the, the coins that are exchanged from all the per, uh, purchases mm-hmm. yeah what were even those coins? Like, what what currency is that? A, a few of them were identified. So some of them were silver and gold. Some of them were company scrip. And I think they very briefly touched on this, but some of them were beaver teeth, which apparently yeah. held some value as well. Well, what's the exchange rate? <laughs> yeah, How know. do you keep <laughs> track of any of it? Like, is like eight beaver teeth equal like one silver piece? Like... I think it's fair to say that this this was not a well-functioning marketplace, and I think that was a necessary condition for this particular story to be told. So I, I, don't, I, I couldn't tell you much more like, specifically than that. He has that sack of coins, and he's like, you know, we have enough to like, you know, put a down payment on, on like a house. And I'm like, how do you even know? I'll, re- I'll refer you back to the Opus Cloud Atlas, where when we first meet Tom <laughs> Hanks's first character, he is harvesting human teeth from a beach of human sacrifices because apparently a pound of them is worth quite a bit of money back home. So, you know, I purged that movie from my memory five minutes after I watched it. Cloud Atlas is very educational, Daniel. <laughs> Certainly not. That's true. True. I wasn't surprised that they died at the end. I, I thought that that was the entire point of the third act and how it was developing was that they weren't going to get away. Right? Anytime characters say we can, you know, we can leave and make a new life together, that's a tip that they're not going to leave. Yeah. Like, that is you know, true. No, nobody ever gets away that says, "I'll be right back." You know, like <laughs> work, work, Everything's going to be okay. I have a plan. The plan's not going to work. When I get home, I'll tell you my greatest secret. Oh, you're going to die now. 
Exactly. Next thing, decapitated. Don't know how. Now, I thought that Q Factor was buffoonish. And, like, he has some good lines, for sure. But he's very silly. I actually was more interested in the captain character. Because he seemed pretty shrewd. And mm-hmm. he seemed to, like, quickly figure out what was going on. I wanted to learn more about that guy. Because that guy, like, knows things and, and does things in his life. That, like, he, he seems like a leader. Yeah, the the captain was played by was played by Scott Shepard, and as soon as he sees the clafouti and then sees the cow, he's immediately putting two and two together. <laughs> uh, particularly the way the cow reacts to to Cookie Figowitz, because yeah. clearly this cow likes him, and it's obvious in how it reacts to him. So it's, a, it's an important little bit of cow related plotting that required a good performance from the cow. I figured you'd appreciate that, Daniel. <laughs> I did, but I wanted more cow. I don't care about bromance in Oregon. I want the I, the movie's called First Cow. Not first bromance, okay? So give me more Evie. Give me more cow. That's the first cow. What's the cow thinking? What does the cow <laughs> want to do in its life? Does it does it like giving out milk to keep factor? What is the was the cow? The cow's a widow. Maybe the cow wants to get back into the dating scene. What's that like for the cow? That's what I that's what I was here for, and I was lied to, and I didn't appreciate it. You know what I imagine happening was actually after Cookie never comes back is that she stops giving milk. milk. And I thought that might have been kind of appropriate. Well, yeah, and then Chief Factor probably puts a bullet in her head. So that's kind of a dark ending to uh, to that story. But Or he has the captain do it for him. He doesn't seem no. like a guy who wants to get his waistcoat dirty. No, I think it's more likely he'd have his servant do it. I had questions about the appearance of the late, great René Aubergenois as uh, Man with Raven. He certainly seemed, I, I guess he was, I don't know, you see a man with a raven, I just assume it's either Daniel. Correct. It was me. <laughs> or it's a representation of death. And that character had zero lines, but he was he was present. And I'm like, it's pr- a pretty major actor to show up in your movie and, and say nothing and do nothing. No, no, he commented on the boots. Oh, did he? What did he say about the boots? I missed that. When Cookie first comes to the fort and he's wearing these new boots, he looks at the boots and says, fancy boots. Okay, he said one thing. That's yeah. I do remember that in me when when they walk through the marketplace, which is another nice scene uh, as they're approaching this fort. It's just a bunch of people with hawking their wares on the side of the road. Like there's barely yeah. even a wall to this fort. William Tyler uh, did the score to this film. He's a Nashville like folk musician. I loved the score to this movie. I really thought it, it was fantastic. It fit with kind of the uh, the overall sound design of the film is quite pleasant as well. I, of course, I don't know who who did the uh, the sound design offhand, but uh, you really feel like oh five seconds of this film just ambient noise you're in the woods in the pacific northwest it feels very familiar just listening to it mm-hmm. and uh that with this uh this kind of swelling uh frontier score layered over it it was uh, it made, made the entire thing feel very grand for such a small and simple story mm-hmm. that's about all i got folks uh, any final thoughts about first cow you need more cow I am terribly sorry that you were not into this movie daniel i really as soon as i saw that scene where cookie figowitz is speaking tenderly to the cow about what a good cow it is. And even no, after they, he even flat out tells the cow, we're using your milk to make oily cakes and make a bunch of money. Thank you so much, you sweet cow. Like, I know, like, I, I like Cookie. Like, he seemed like a nice person, right? Like, the trappers are like, we're going to beat your ass, Cookie. And then they don't beat his ass, but I was waiting for that because, like, a guy clearly said, I'm going to wait for you outside after we get to the town and I'm going to beat your ass. And then that guy had just gone mad with hunger, though. But I don't know. You, you get the sense that there were people like that all around him at all times. It's going to put you on edge. Like, but, like, Cookie seemed like a good person, right? Like, he takes care of King Lou when he, re- when he runs into him. Like, he doesn't seem like he wants to take a life, 
Like when in that first scene, they say like, you know, you're supposed to feed us, and you second you couldn't even capture a squirrel. And I got the sense that like Cookie just let the squirrel go, uh, and then he quickly catches a fish just to placate these men because like they're gonna kill him otherwise. Yeah. So I got the sense that like Cookie was probably a vegetarian, or at least like a proto vegetarian, like where he doesn't want to take a life, but he's like surrounded by people like. Glenn, uh, who are totally uh, on board with exploiting everything that he comes in contact with, including my time with telling me that the movie's about a cow. So, uh, Daniel, it seems as if, I mean, regarding Cookie as sort of a proto-vegetarian, uh, would you would you say that his, that your attitude about his exploitation of the cow, and this was your word as you put it, is informed in any way by, you know, modern industrial dairy production more so than the context of this film? No, because like what he's taken from the cow is pretty minuscule. Like, he's definitely not overproducing the cow, right? Like, he's taking only, like, a bowl or two at night. And, like, a cow is still able to produce some milk a little bit. Like, Chief Factor says that, oh, she barely produces a drop. But, like, she's producing enough that he isn't just killing the cow. Yeah. Right? And so Chief Factor's like, oh, the cow is heartsick. Because the cow was heartsick because she lost her baby and, and and her husband cow. And... Steer, Daniel, steer. I like husband cow. Thank you, Erica. And like, we don't (laughs) even get into like how the cow is emotionally feeling because that's what I was here for. I mean, Cookie Figowitz does literally console the cow for the loss of its calf and husband. Which is actually very progressive for 1820. Like, I, I liked, I liked that Cookie was so gentle. Actually, like the very first scene in the movie is him like foraging for mushrooms and like there's a salamander that's overturned and he turns it over like you know from the very beginning that this is not someone who's going to go out of his way to hurt anything yeah he's from the shire and he's a friend to all creatures that much is clear in that scene (laughs) king lou king lou's a little different king lou is a little different yes but king lou also does not strike me as a bad person he just strikes me as a guy who's kind of trying to get it get his he doesn't seem like somebody who would fuck over his friends to do it he's just like he's willing to bend the rules a little bit so i mean it kind of made me sad for cookie because he probably would have been just fine working in a kitchen his entire life but clearly some circumstance you know drove him from maryland to boston you know and then all the way out to these territories i mean he doesn't like fit with like you know, he doesn't fit with the trappers that he's initially with. He certainly doesn't, you know, fit with, you know, like the violent types. He certainly is, you know, not there to be a prospector. He's just kind of like accidentally, like, you know, across the country and trying to make things work. Yeah, didn't he say, Erica, that like his uh, parents died when he was young? And he yeah. He's kind of traveled ever since. Oh, yeah, we, we know that his parents are dead, but he's a grown up. So it's unclear how relevant that would be if not for... I, I think Erica's point is valid. I think that he, uh, I think that him being a bit of a misfit explains his presence here yeah. better than his mom dying in childbirth and his dad yeah, dying shortly thereafter. Like he had nowhere to go. He didn't really have any skills. He didn't really have anything that was tying him to the old country. So. <laughs> I don't think a Boston is an old country. Yeah, it's like not old country it's now. old enough by America's standards, sure, but. No, I, I mean, th- this is a nice film. Like, like the tension is pretty minuscule. I just felt bad at the end that, you know, Evie is, like, encaged, like, right? Their actions caused them to, like, create, like, a palisade around the poor cow. So that, that was sad. Oh, yeah, and, and they died, but, like, who cares about them? 
Uh, all right, folks. Uh, well, Eric, any final thoughts about the film? It's just a nice movie, you know. I I've not seen any any other films by uh, by Kelly Reichert before, but I I want to see more now. I mean, it seems like she kind of likes to do these sort of companion pieces. You know, her first couple of movies apparently like her dog was like one of the main characters. Uh, that that would be the film Wendy and Lucy, I believe, which is about uh, Michelle Williams and her dog. I think. Yes. Yeah. And then, which is like that's actually been on like my list to watch for forever. So now she did another a western called Meek's Cutoff. Yes. And uh, then, which I've not seen, but she also did a movie called Night Moves, which is not a western at all. It takes place in the present day, and it's Jesse Eisenberg and Dakota Fanning as a couple of environmentalists yeah. who. Uh, who basically take part in a plot to blow up a dam. Right. Uh, and yeah, Daniel, this movie that. might be more your speed. <laughs> uh, I'm up for blowing up dams. Uh, the movie, the movie's called Night Moves. It's a, it's an outstanding film. I mean, you want do just, they blow just a, up taut, a dam? tense thriller. Uh, do they blow up a dam? Yes, they do. <laughs> okay, good. So you're not going to lie to me about another movie where it's like, oh, but they actually just established a really nice friendship, and then some yeah, I mean, the, uh, I mean, much over. of the movie is about what what ensues as a result of their actions, but uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a great deal of tension involved there as a result. It, it's a, it's an outstanding film. I have a problem with films that mislead me from the title. <laughs> well, in this in night moves, there are moves at night. Thank you. That's what I'm looking for. Like, don't lie to me and try to come up with some pithy title that your movie's not about. Uh, Daniel, did you see a second cow in this movie? <laughs> I rest no, my case. But I spent very little time with the cow, and that's what upset me. Fair enough. Well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of First Cow, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. And now on to our review of Promising Young Woman. Every week. I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? One, two, three, four. I thought we had a connection. Okay. How old am I? What are my hobbies? What's my name? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. That was from the trailer of Promising Young Woman, the directorial debut of uh, English director Emerald Fennell, who uh, who was also the showrunner and I believe the series writer for the second series of Killing Eve, uh, as well as she's acted in a number of things as well. But this is her first uh, directed feature, and it's starring Carrie Mulligan, Bo Burnham, Alison Brie, and uh, many others. So this film is about a character, Cassie Thomas, who is... Uh, Kind of the elevator pitch for this film is that she is going to bars, picking up creepy men who would uh, who would be predatory toward a uh, woman who is clearly too drunk to consent, and is uh, doing some exhibiting some sort of violent retribution upon them. The trailer leaves it nice and vague as to what this is, but that is essentially the premise of the film. What ensues, I think, is a bit more specific than that. Uh, and has to do with a more specific plan and backstory for this character. So I think we'll be limited to how much we can discuss about the, this before we get into spoilers. But uh, I'll uh, I'll put it to you folks first. This was another one that was de- that was long delayed by COVID and finally got a release date uh, here in uh, here in December. So I think a lot of folks are going to be seeing it just in time for the Oscar push, which may be happening for this one. That's that's at least what the rumor is. Oh boy. I had such a good time with this movie. Everything about it, I really enjoyed. It's, I mean, not only is it always just really, really nice to see Carrie Mulligan do anything, but it's really nice to see her in a role with, like, 
equal parts like teeth and then sometimes like a strange passivity and then like all of the supporting characters are fantastic like nice to see clancy brown as like not a creep and like not a prison (laughs) warden that is nice yes he plays her father yeah he's just a regular dude (laughs) yeah just a regular dude and like uh, like you see alfred molina just for one scene and it's incredibly affecting it's it's a very unique and interesting movie, and um, Justin also enjoyed it, so that's a big deal, too. He agreed that it was really unique, and it certainly is. Daniel, what did you think of the film? I liked it overall. I think I had some questions that went unanswered that kind of like bugged me a little bit throughout. Um, I definitely really enjoyed uh, Carrie Mulligan's performance, like her ability to portray being fallen down drunk and then immediately turn the script and flip the tables on her predatory men that picked her up. It was clear, like, she was having fun, at least, like, with the acting challenge of doing that. Yeah, this is both the actress who is acting in those scenes and also the character who is acting in those scenes. So there's sort of a dual-layered performance going on there. I think she did a really, really good job as the character. I have issues with, and I, and I say that as just, like, as a concept of the avenging, like, in, the instrument of revenge, right? That type of character. Because everything that they do kind of works too perfectly, that they're able to expertly analyze and anticipate what their opponent is going to, like, how they're going to react. And that kind of takes me out of the scene a little bit because the tension's not quite there. Because I know that she has everything under control, at least for most of the film. And so, like, it's hard to identify that person as a real person, because nobody is able to be that cunning and clever and, and able to, like, trick people just the right way to catch them on their lies. Like, it doesn't happen in real life. Uh, so that kind of takes me out of the film a little bit. But overall, as someone who got married to the first person they've ever dated, who's never gone to a club to pick anybody up or even try to... I find dating and rape culture perplexing and disgusting. So, like, this is a window into a world that I've never inhabited, and uh, quite frankly, kind of scares me. Daniel, can I just say that, like, I think your comment about how it's not possible to be the person that holds all the cards and essentially knows exactly what is going to happen, um, I actually think that, like... I don't think you're right about that, but I think that it speaks highly of you. Like, there are very definitely people out there that, like, have the kind of mentality that just kind of knows. And I feel like the thing about Promising Young Women that it sets up really well is just that this is someone who has kind of let a past event kind of change who they are and their way of thinking. And given that, like, the tally that she racks up, I think after a while, like... I'm sorry, but a certain amount of, like, the kind of, like, men that she was meeting, their behavior would have been predictable. It speaks highly of you that this wouldn't have happened to you. But I, like, as as a woman, I'm like, yeah, we've all met those assholes. So. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think your point is fair. I think I was largely um, referring to some of the later scenes. Sure. She's yeah. running her game to get back at those characters. Uh, those scenes felt a little artificial to me. I think we talk more about those when we get into spoilers. I think we're we're straddling a dangerous line here, but right, right. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go any further into that. Like I agree with you, Erica, about the the tally because one, she racks up a huge tally, but I wasn't quite sure what the different colors meant. 
Like, I, it looked like... By, by the end, I wasn't sure if the colors meant anything specific. Initially, I had a sort of a code key in mind for them, but then yeah, I, I, I thought was less maybe sure them Black meant lecture, red meant, like, she named them in some way, and I wasn't sure because it was never explicitly explained. Mm. I think that the elevator pitch for this movie might be, uh, I'm not a regular watcher of Law & Order SVU, but it's Law & Order (laughs) SVU if the protagonist was Jack Bauer. Um, I think there is a certain element of escapism and also kind of hyper-competence going on in this film. Um, This is somebody who is, uh, like, if if not Jack Bauer, then John Wick, if you like. You know, this is somebody who we just have to accept that she's been running this game for a long time and... Uh, what we see her do at the beginning with Jerry, the date rapist, uh, played by Adam Brody, who doesn't seem like he's aged noticeably since he played a similarly creepy role in Jennifer's body. Of all people. But uh, I mean, this is a guy who like we we established this scene with the worst possible offender here, short of somebody who is violently dragging her into the bushes. And, uh, you know, this is a guy who and it's it's like it's like Erica said that it's not about whether Daniel, you or I would would be would would be predatory towards somebody who is too drunk at a club, or whether we can relate to that situation at all. Um, it's about the fact that we know, and all three of us know that if some that if a woman is by herself and drunk in a club, so drunk that she's falling off her seat, some guy in there is going yeah. to be predatory toward her, and it's not about us it's not about any specific dude but it's about any old dude it's well, about I, the I fact that, that there's no good reason why that woman should not be taken care of in that situation yeah where's the bartender I- and the assumption that she wouldn't be and that somebody would take advantage of her is kind of baked into the the threat model that she is dealing with in this film and it is as you as you said rape culture uh, the idea that the idea that women live in a completely different world from men when it comes to when it comes to dealing with these matters and the movie sort of taking that as as canon from the beginning and giving us an exceptionally horrifying case of it from the beginning was kind of setting up the stakes of okay this is somebody who's who's ready for this situation who's expecting this situation and has a bag of tools at her disposal so yeah i wonder like when she's at those bars one, won't the bartenders recognize her after a while? Because she has a lot of check marks, and there's only so many bars in a city where they're like, oh, you get too drunk here, and then we've heard complaints. See, honestly, that was kind of like the genius of it for me. Part of the genius for me is that I, I mean, I don't know necessarily where it was supposed to take place. I would feel like she's probably savvy enough to kind of like rotate the bars, A. But B, and the more important thing is that like, it's hard for me to imagine, you know, with the like with the way that like one of the things that uh, one thing about, you know, like the way we've set up, you know, masculine culture is that, you know, if a woman found a way to humiliate you, I think probably one of the last things you do is complain about it. Like, I mean, it's if she I mean, fine, if she yeah, castrates but... you, yeah, that's probably gonna come out. But if it's just you know, you get the, it's not always the same thing. You know, she has a couple of, you know, you get to see a couple of different, very different scenarios play out. It just seems you'd probably keep it to yourself because, I mean, who do you tell? Like, you look like the asshole. And then you had a woman who made you look like, who made you look like an idiot. Yeah, it's it's like being ripped. It's like being robbed while dealing drugs. <laughs> you're, you're, you're committing a crime. And you got interrupted in the course of committing a crime, so you're not going to tell him. No, you're going to lie low. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, I I don't know. I I was kind of... The other thing that I think made all that that kind of work for me was it, it... 
it was kept nice and vague what she was doing to these guys, how many times she had done this, and what her body count, if anything, was. But, I mean, as the film goes on, I was less and less sure that she'd ever killed anyone. It, like, right. The movie never firmly established that one way or the other. So, but but then, as as the film went on, that became less and less the point as we learned more of her backstory and why she's doing all of this. So, um, folks, uh, do we want to talk about anybody else here before we uh, get into it? Bo Burnham uh, plays a uh, plays uh, Ryan who is a fellow who's uh, who's got designs on dating her and can't talk too much about him but uh but I don't know I I liked Bo Burnham as an as a casting choice for this because you know doofy likable improviser director guy I uh, you know I kind of I really wanted to like this guy and for for this movie to attempt to tell kind of an earnest love story in the middle of this revenge fantasy and dark comedy was a bold choice and uh I, I thought it made a lot of the later stuff in the film work, and I, I really thought it paid off nicely. So I thought the tone was really interesting, too, because like there's clearly moments of the film that are meant to be funny, uh, as well as moments that are incredibly dark, right? All yes. the colors are really bright, and I guess it feels like they were trying to evoke a tone that was a little bit lighter because the subject matter is so dark, and they didn't want to scare away people from seeing the film by making it too much horror. Uh, but it was an interesting, like, you know, contrast, you know, between the two where it's like everything is bright, colorful, but then we're talking about rape culture and we're talking about revenge against uh, as much as one person could get revenge on the totality of rape culture. It might be that that I'm, I, I'm a, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a very conscious choice. Like I, I kind of like loved the color palette, you know, it was more like bubble gum than like, um, there's actually like a very quick clip in the movie from a movie called Night of the Hunter. There's supposed to be some kind of dread, but. Yeah, that movie, that movie's from 1955 and it's about a priest who decides to turn into a serial killer. So, um, it's, it seemed like a very conscious choice, including that one, that, that film in the middle of this one. But the the palette, I think, is also kind of related to, like, maybe we've kind of come to the point where we, like, we should be talking about, like, rape culture, but not making it seem, unfortunately, the fact that, like, men's rights activists exist and legitimately think that they have a grievance, they're probably more likely to not even know about this film if it doesn't come off like a documentary, you know, if they make it seem kind of like more harmless, it actually it's has the ability to be a lot more impactful. Like it's without poking fun at it, it's like saying, you know, this is there's parts of this. And like, look at how she's kind of having fun with it. It's kind of it's fascinating. I sorry, I really can't say too much about this movie. I was all set to ask, actually, uh, whether whether either of you found this film, uh, I, I guess, didactic to a certain degree. And it sounds like, Erica, the answer for you was not that it was not trying to sort of explain Rape Culture 101 for people who have never heard of it so much as sneak in things that they should be aware of already as part of the backdrop of the film. Um, Because my answer for that was no. I I, I felt like it was touching upon every aspect of it from all the both all the men and women who reinforce it through their actions, but also uh, but also just all the casual casual ways in which it interacts with people, with women throughout their throughout their and and men as well um, throughout their lives here. Um, but I didn't feel like the movie was ever trying to explain things to me. Um, and whenever it was doing that, it would just get real dark and real funny real quick. So, um, so yeah, I thought that that tone worked really well. It held that line pretty, pretty nicely. Well, folks, should we go ahead and get into spoilers? Let's do it. So, uh, yeah, from here on out, spoilers for Promising Young Woman.
quick shout out to Christopher Mintz Plus, who shows up as Neil the Cokehead, uh, who is, I believe, her second man that she takes home. Uh, that guy does not seem to have uh, does not seem to have changed much in the last decade. But this is one of the one of the only acting roles I've seen him in in a while, and he he is always still a delight as ever. Well, related to that, there's some really nice visual details in that scene, like the fact that he's doing blow off an album called Je Dangereux. And it's like he's got like a a movie for like a movie poster for a movie called Panique on his wall, and uh, then you know when she when she leaves she she leaves by saying, "By the way, your novel sounds terrible." <laughs> Was a nice detail, yes. My favorite brush off of all time because like you know it's it's like she like she just found a way to like kick him even further below the belt, and I. You know, as as someone who who writes, it's like, ah, yes, that that would be a really good parting shot. Oh, by the way, this self-involved, like, oh, so like, you know, tender project of yours. Yeah, it sounds terrible. Fuck you. But but Erica, it's about being a man right now. And like these times, like, doesn't that sound enticing? Not only that, but he drops a bit of sort of pseudo feminist feminism slash pickup artist bullshit on her about her makeup. Like he's negging her about her makeup, but he's also telling her she doesn't need to wear it. And she feels oh, yeah. like women shouldn't feel all these pressures. And that now he wants right. her to do coke right. so that he can make out with her face. Like um, it's uh, it's interesting because he this is the guy who establishes that she doesn't necessarily or yeah. even has ever actually harmed any of these guys, that their actions determine their fate to a certain degree. Um, you know, she flat out says to him like, oh, like, uh, you know, you didn't try to, you didn't try to take my clothes off while I was passed out. So you win points for that, believe it or not. Yeah, he, um, he woke but, her up. Uh, he woke her up, uh, cause he thought cause she passed out from the blow. So yeah. he, she gave him points. Not a lot of points, but a few. Yeah, I mean, Neil was meant to be the prototypical nice guy, and uh, I, th- I think that it, I think that this is maybe the scene where the movie came closest to reaching that point of being didactic because the the nice guy trope I think has kind of been done to death. But this scene is literally three minutes long, and I thought it worked fine. So it's cringy as all. But out. yeah, we're we're certainly burying the lead here, much like the script of this film does, because uh, yeah, three like her final plan. You can say it was a success, but I don't think she was planning on getting murdered. <laughs> I think she was, actually. Yeah, I think she was. I don't think she was planning on that specific outcome. I think she was just planning on that being a possible outcome of of her plan. Like, I I don't think she wanted that to happen. (laughs) That was not the only way she was going to take this guy down. She just knew it was a possibility when she was going to show up there and castrate him. Yeah, I don't think she... I think she just thought she didn't have anything else, you know, like that that was going to be her her exit, you know, because she was never going to be able to have you know, a normal life. She was always going to be, you know, haunted by what had happened to her friend. And, you know, that she'd already like, you know, been derailed for so long. I mean, you know, it's it's like the great Keith Richards tells us, like, it's okay to let yourself go as long as you can let yourself back. And I, I don't think she saw a way back. Of course, we very gradually learn what happened to her friend Nina Fisher. Like we, we know that something bad happened to Nina. It's it's gradually sort of poured out over the course of the film that Nina's probably dead. We certainly have not seen her uh, at any point in the film, and they talk about her in the past tense. So she's either dead or she's gone away, and isn't isn't around anymore. And we eventually learn that what happened was, uh, and, and I'm I'm 
you know, this is some dire subject matter. I'm obviously going to put a uh, uh, put a content warning on this episode here, because uh, there's no way to discuss this film otherwise. But uh, her friend, uh, her friend was was raped on camera in front of other people at their at their medical school, and she ended up dropping out. Uh, you know, she would have. You know, she was she was one of the top students there. You know, might have been valedictorian, uh, but she dropped out, and then her and then her friend Cassie ended up dropping out to take care of her. So that's two you know promising young women taken out by this one by this one this one crime um but that this guy this guy al monroe played by chris lowell we had a little veronica mars reunion there we had max greenfield and chris lowell there um chris lowell actually uh played a uh played a love interest of veronica mars in the uh, the third season when she is hunting for a for a campus rapist during that scene uh so uh, i was i was definitely getting some getting some flashbacks there but uh but yeah this guy this guy went on to be a successful doctor as did Ryan, her love interest in the film. And that's where uh, Daniel, I don't know. I don't know how you can come away with this film. A saying it's predictable and B saying like she, she had everything in hand or every part of her plan went perfectly well. I don't think that's true at all. I don't think she saw Ryan coming at all. I think she, I think against her better judgment, she legitimately started falling, falling for this guy. She got into a relationship with him despite not really feeling like that was something she wanted in her life right then. Or whether this was the guy that she could trust to be that guy, and it ended up, it ended up, re- like really genuinely hurting her. No, when I say that everything went well, I don't mean that she predicted like everything in the universe happening. Uh, what I meant was when she runs her game, her gambit against Madison, Allison Brie, it all goes flawlessly, right? Like when she runs her her game against the the men at the bachelor party, it all just goes like until the very end, it all goes very. You know, easily, right? They all well, it's fairly easy to manipulate a, a group of drunk men into drinking a bottle of vodka that you pour into their mouths when you're dressed like a Harley Quinn stripper. I'm sorry. I've thrown two bachelor parties. If an unknown person comes into the bachelor party, where the guys are like, no, I think you have the wrong address. <laughs> uh, what, what address did you have? Let's check your phone. We can give you directions. That's who we are. <laughs> the fact that, like, they just say... Okay, great. Even though nobody hired her, like that seemed a little bit like okay. The movie's just like letting this happen. I mean, she waited well into the movie, or she waited until well into the evening to show up. So it's conceivable that maybe not all the guys were even present in that room anymore. Nobody was willing to own up to it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And she, she basically had good spycraft in that scene. I mean, she flat out whispered in his ear. She's like, "Look, uh, you don't have to do anything with me, but I don't get paid unless I go upstairs with Which- you." Okay, sure. And all of a sudden, this is just, hey, we're regular people, and she's manipulating him into, uh, you know, it almost feels like watching a spy movie at that point. Um, and he he really could just go on his merry way. The scene with the Dean, I, it didn't work for me. I thought it was... It's it Connie was, Britton? Yeah, I thought it, it was, um, it went too easily for her, right? You know, she kidnaps the daughter, like she's able to manipulate the Dean into revealing the information that she needs to make her point. Like, I don't know if I'm the king, I slug her in the face. I absolutely loved this scene, and not least because, you know, I still think of Connie Britton as, you know, as Tammy Taylor. And, you know, this completely different character who would definitely not be apologizing for a rapist and saying, you know, we can't let this ruin their lives, you know, with like that, like simpering deany tone like i that, that betsy devos tone oh <laughs> and i know God. she's just repeating what the right wing wants to hear mm-hmm. at this point but still i really liked 
I mean, I I was relieved actually because for about five seconds I thought that like her like she was actually allowing this girl to have been in that in an identical situation like that, and I was like, okay, that's too far. But then it was like, oh no, she's fine. I mean, your daughter's dumb, but she's fine. Like she's at this diner, like. Well, not only that, but that scene takes place right after a scene in which we think that she has left Allison Bree's character, Madison, uh, right. to get drunk and then get raped in a hotel room. Like, it almost seems like that's the movie we're watching here, is that is that this really has to, like, what happened to her friend, or what happened to her, like, we don't even know what happened to Nina at this point, or, or whether, whether she was involved with it as well, but all of a sudden she's perpetrating the very evils that were perpetrated upon her, or her friend, or both, and all of a sudden we're not sure how we feel about this character. And, uh, and, you know, in the same way as we don't, you know, we don't know how many of these guys she's injured, what she's doing to them, et cetera, et cetera. It almost feels like we're watching uh, a film or a TV series in which the protagonist is a serial killer like Dexter, yeah. where we're just like, okay, we have to view all of these actions through the lens of the morality of this character, which is that she's willing to just sort of shove aside anybody who's in her way through her, through her various intricate plans. But as the film goes on, it's revealed that her hands are actually cleaner than they seem to be for much of the film. So I, I don't know. I think, I think the real turning point is with, uh, is when she meets with Jordan green, uh, Alfred Molina's character um, shows up at his door, tells him it's his day of reckoning. And he just does not fight it at all. He, he is spilling the truth. He is given the goods and he realizes what a shithole he, of a human being he is. That that he's done harm in the world and he really feels bad about it and he feels like he doesn't deserve forgiveness. And that is the only thing that he can say that results in her forgiving him to his face. I mean, it was, it's an intense scene. It is. Uh, it's really, it's, it, it stick, it's stuck with me, you know, more than probably the other, a lot of the other scenes in the movie. She hired a hitman though, right? Like that guy outside was a hitman. Yeah. Was she going to have him killed? That's the part of like, I'm, that that was where I had some questions about what her methodology was. Where is she hiring these mercenaries to? I guess she hired a guy to, to go into to put Madison to bed in a hotel room, but like that's it. It must be somebody that she absolutely trusted, because her goal was to not have anything happen to her, really, just to make her think that something had happened. And that's still pretty fucked up. Like, how does she find somebody on Craigslist who's willing to go along with that plan? I don't know, Glenn. I don't think you've been on Craigslist a lot. A lot of -of out-of-work improv actors right now, so maybe. (laughs) Times are desperate. It might not actually be that hard to, in theory, cast someone to do that, or it's just someone that she knows. I mean, the kind of interesting thing is that, you know, she, you know, clearly has a very low opinion of men, and why wouldn't she? But... She's also, like, she does have to entrust a couple, I mean, a couple of men at least to kind of, like, help out with, you know, keeping the scene. So, yeah, I mean, it gives her low-key supervillain chops. Like, you wonder what else this sure, person yeah. has gotten up to. What, like, how big is her organization, really? <laughs> but I don't know. The Harley Quinn reference was not accidental. She really does feel like a bit of a, a, bit of a supervillain over the course of this film. <laughs> like, she's... Like her, the idea that she's able to, t- that her mad scheme is able to succeed because because she has these grand designs and because she she's figured out how this this world of rape culture works and is willing to sort of spin is able to sort of spin a narrative that works and, and accomplish what she wants. I don't know. It kind of works for the the vaguely comic booky tone of the film. You even talked about sort of the neon color uh, color scheme of the film. It all does kind of fit with a comic book villain aesthetic. So, did you notice at the end how her wig actually matches the colors on her fingernails? Oh yes, it's uh, yeah. She's got the ra- the the sort of rainbow pastels going on in both. Yeah, 
So you thought that Al was going to get cast dragon? I thought she was doing a girl with a dragon tattoo. Like she was going to carve Nina's name into his chest. Oh, yeah, she literally was going to do that. Yeah. Yes. I, I can't imagine any version of that where she doesn't end up facing some sort of legal consequences for it, though. Right. But I don't know, maybe she just figured she'd get away with it. I mean, he'd have a hell of a time proving who she was or that she was there, so. Well, yeah, because he um, couldn't even be, bo- like, he didn't even know her name. I mean, she said that, like, that was before I got hot. Yeah. And then we get this, we get this speech where she explains herself and really explains her friend. And this is, this is really honestly one of the most Jack Bauer-like moments that I saw from this character, because there is a scene like this. It's funny, the person that Jack Bauer is speaking to is literally named Nina. Uh, but uh, in the third season of, uh, of 24, he's speaking to the person who murdered his wife. Um, spoilers for a, for a 20-year-old TV show here. And he basically tells a little anecdote about what a great person his wife was. And that's very similar to what happens here. Only uh, Cassie gives a speech about her friend that's kind of more of a holistic view of like, here's what you took out of the world through your actions and through what you allowed to be done to protect you. Um, If you had just, if you just accepted it, if you just accepted the consequences for what you did and not felt the need to destroy your victim even further, um, you wouldn't have taken this this beautiful human being out of the world. This person that I that I had known, and she 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 talks about how she was when she was four years old, which compounds it. It means she was a lifelong friend to this person. It, it makes it makes that loss feel that much more potent. So, and it also makes makes you that much more intimidated for what she's going to do. Like you don't know until that scene what she's what she's got planned for this guy. You just know it can't be anything good. <laughs> it's an amazing performance from Carrie Mulligan and. Just absolutely ruthless. So, and I think the casting of, of our villains here is really, really good because all these people that get introduced as like assholes and like perpetrators of rape culture, I'm like, oh, I like that actor. I like that actress. They're they're like, doofy and they're attractive. I'm like, oh, don't be mean to Allison Brie. Like, <laughs> like I, I don't allow that. Yeah, we got Chris cool. Lowell, Max Greenfield, Adam Brody, and we've got uh, Sam Richardson, who I, I've seen in this and that as well. Um, as Paul, the forgetful louse, who uh, she picks him up even after successfully picking up Adam Brody in the earlier scene. I guess he was drunk enough not to realize it was the same one who apparently uh, abducted her friends. So. Oh, I enjoyed I enjoyed that scene very much, especially when it's revealed who she is. He's like, why do you guys have to ruin everything? And then runs off crying. Oh, God, that was great. Like <laughs> This movie definitely revels in male fragility, uh, I think, to a gleeful degree. And I didn't really I certainly did not mind that watching the film. Um, because that's that's kind of the whole motif uh, at work here. The idea of uh, the idea of protecting these young men's futures, and this is the worst thing that can possibly happen to a young man. And all of those tropes were brought right out in the final scene after the after a fucking murder of a stripper at a bachelor party happens, and all of a sudden they're fucking play acting very bad things in a cabin in the woods. And uh, and uh, yeah, Joe Max Greenfield's character even even comments on what a '90s fucking cliche this is. To the point where he doesn't believe that it's really happening. He just thinks that his friend cheated on his fiance on his uh, on the night before his wedding, which is just just good clean fun, of course. I was so happy to see Max Greenfield. Like, I, like he was the only reason why I stuck with New Girl for us, like for the duration of the show. 
He is a very fun actor, and he plays a very unlikable character. And here. for him to be like, well, we have to burn the body, I was like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> they, they jumped directly to that. Like, I was like, we're on the same wave, wavelength there, Joe. Like, yes, you have to burn this body right now. <laughs> yeah, and they're crying, and they're hugging, and they're reassuring each other, and they're giving all this mutual support about what good people they are. And I'm just like, I know they would never do this in front of anybody who's not their bros. I was just waiting for her to sit up like, you know, you know, Frey Krueger or something and then stab them. Like, I wasn't convinced she was dead because I wasn't convincing anything that she was doing in the film. Because it would look like setting out, you know, Madison up to be raped in a hotel room turned out not to be the case. Well, it looks like she dropped off the dean's daughter to be gang raped. That turned out not to be the case. Wait a minute, so, so, so you no think she went to the she... apothecary and took a dram of a, uh, of a quick poison that would put her into a deep sleep? <laughs> I have no idea. I like this character apparently fell in love with uh, Ryan Cooper, and even though like she knows that he's friends with uh, Al, like they're still like in the same social group. That you know, Al was responsible for you know Nina's you know gang rape and, and abuse, and then she's like, and so, Ryan was a bystander, and yeah, and she's so shocked, you know, shock of all shock that he was like a part of it that night, and he says a bystander. I was like, yeah, obviously. I think that it is very it is a very important plot detail that her character ends up developing a genuine affection for Ryan and what a betrayal that is. She brings her ruthless persona to bear on him immediately because all of a sudden he's just one more shitty man uh, who could, who whose whose feelings in that moment can be dismissed because they don't matter any more than the crime that he was a bystander for and did nothing to stop. It doesn't matter that you feel bad. It doesn't matter that you're sorry. Like no, this is over. I, like we're not we're not in a relationship anymore. The fact that she's able to say those things so ruthlessly does not change the feelings that I really believed that she was experiencing before that. And the idea that somebody could fall into a genuine affectionate relationship with somebody and then learn something about their past that makes you rethink the entirety of that relationship. I don't know. It was one of the most relatable things about this film. Yeah. uh, I I thought. I feel like she was probably... I don't want to say like deluding herself, but it, I mean, it never seemed to me as though like they were friends so much as like the, that, um, that, you know, that Al and, and Bo Burnham's character, you know, were necessarily friends. They were just, you know, at med school together, you know, it's, it's certainly a very close knit group. So maybe she just kind of, you know, wanted to believe that, you know, just because they knew each other then, I mean, like six or seven years have passed, you know, that that might just kind of be it. I will say, I I don't disagree with your interpretation of what she was trying to tell herself about Ryan, but he definitely drops Al's name in their first conversation. No, I I remember, but then I also remember, like, how, like, their first interaction, like, he allows her to spit in his coffee and is kind of okay with it. It just, I mean, it's, I'm not going to say that it's charming, but it is, I mean, it is distinctive, so... I don't know. Um, Where is that? <laughs> maybe it was just like, ultimately, maybe she wanted like something normal, you know, like just after years of doing this really weird thing, then she like bounces back and realizes, no, like there can be even in got in quote unquote, like nice guys, you know, they can in a moment of weakness be like, but I was just a kid, which is just, oh my God, like the worst. The yeah, same. the number of the number of just a kids that I've seen who are like well into their 30s. And when we're talking about like federal crimes that they've yeah. committed, it's this whole, it's this whole trope, and it's in it's in the culture, it's in the political culture, it's in it's in it's a sickness in American culture that people are not 
especially just rich white people, <laughs> rich white dudes, are never considered to be fully formed human beings when they are perpetrating crimes on other people. Well, it's really just rich white dudes. I mean, you know, like there's, you know, there's an yep. entire, the Equal Justice Initiative essentially like exists because like so many young black men were getting basically tried as adults when they're 16. So, you know, it's a complete double standard as with so many, as with so many other things. So, yeah. Everyone's just a kid, as long as there's somebody in their life who is powerful who can say, he's a good kid. Right. If they don't have anybody like that who can go to bat for them and who can spend money advancing that message on their behalf, they're 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 a grown-up and they're a thug and we're going to put them away. So, but it, I don't know, it's... I think that that sort of trope of people who commit crimes are just a kid and meant well and are good people, really, uh, I think is something the film only touches on. I don't think it was really the focus of the film, but it was definitely there in the background. There's there's a lot of stuff simmering in this in this soup, you know, like it's 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 definitely the kind of thing that like you're going to I think probably if I watched it again, I would I would come away with like, you know, different things. I I hope I would still laugh at like the idiocy of the men in this movie, but I think that there'd be other things, too. So it's a a rich tapestry. Yeah, I mean, we're literally fighting for democratic control of the United States Senate because, you know, a man in North Carolina couldn't keep his dick in his pants for a year and a half. So, you know, I'm not uh, not one to not one to underestimate the stupidity of men and the impact that that stupidity can have. So that is a buffoonish uh, background to this film certainly worked for me. Daniel, you started to say something there? Yeah, I was going to say, like, I think there is something to say of like stupid actions that you do as a kid that really shouldn't impact your life forever, but rape is not. No. Yeah, when I I was 14, I shoved a porta potty down a hill. I probably fucking destroyed it when it hit the bottom, and I don't think that should impact the rest of my life. But that... Nobody was in the porta potty when I did this, so... That you know of. I will say... It, it is it is fair to say that uh, there is a direct economic cost to the stupidity of children that we have to just kind of shrug off. And every once in a while, I'll see a figure on that. Like children, uh, children in the UK cause nine billion pounds in property damage in you know, a certain year or something. like that. that was a real one that I saw a few years ago. And I'm just like, that is a substantial amount of damage. That is quite <laughs> a lot. The, yes. But at the same time, I'm it's just like, if we don't have this. stupid kids, we don't get hopefully intelligent adults. So like a certain amount of that is just what it takes to raise new people. But again, there is a point. And that point is crimes against other people. And and obviously, there's no absolute black and white line here that says, you know, these crimes, <laughs> these crimes will make you a permanent non-person and we're gonna have to put you away forever. Like, obviously, there's some nuance to how we sure. handle these situations. But we do have to regard some actions committed by children as serious and as worthy of being treated as serious uh, actions and don't just look at them as things that can be shrugged off because they are, quote unquote, just kids. So, right. And yeah, rape is one of them. Certainly. Agree. Agree. I will add. I will add that, as well as violence against people, violence against animals, too. That's my line. Uh, It also certainly seems to be a warning sign for potential violence against people and animals in the future. Well, this went to an even darker place than the film. (laughs) This film was very provocative and definitely left me with more questions (laughs) about what exactly (laughs) Cassie was doing (laughs) with a lot of these men because it was unclear. Um, But I, yeah, the performances are great. And I came away liking the film quite a bit. 
Uh, I also want to shout out to, um, in the same way that I loved uh, William Tower's score for First Cow, I really like the soundtrack to this film. Some very good licensed tracks for uh, for the film here, and I'll probably end up using some of them in the podcast. But uh, this really, it felt like uh, the Bling Ring or one of these ones where they really put a lot of thought into what they wanted to say with the different uh, the different songs. There's this amazing orchestral rendition of Britney Spears' Toxic yes. that ends up playing near the end. And that, as I described, that it doesn't seem like it should work, but it actually fits the scene perfectly. It's uh, it's it's as she's approaching the uh, uh, the bachelor party, dressed in her in her demented candy striper outfit, and it it, it totally works. Uh, well, folks, uh, apart from never depend on furry handcuffs uh, when death is on the line, uh, what <laughs> what final thoughts do you have on the film? It, it's it's a real it's really important. I feel like this might be one of those movies that almost like couldn't have been made, you know. You know, except, you know, in the last couple of years when, like, people are just starting to realize that, like, you know, the Me Too movement has to be a part of so many, you know, really relevant conversations. Um, But yeah, I'd really recommend it because it's more, it sounds strange, but it is a more fun movie than you expect. But it's also just, like, very deeply thoughtfully done. And I think just, you know, everything about it is pretty spot on. And um you know, it, it intimidates me that the director is quite as talented as she is because I first saw her acting on a lovely series called Call the Midwife. And now she's appearing mm. as Camilla Parker Bowles in The Crown. So, oh, wow. yeah, so quite a quite a resume. Yeah, uh, the rape Avenger genre certainly has predecessors uh, to to this film, but I think I would agree with you that this is the first time that I've seen one that sort of uh, takes on this subject matter in such a thoughtful way. I mean, the the forebears to this film are the likes of Teeth, which is a horror yeah. film uh, about a girl with a vagina dentata, and every single man that she meets in that film tries to rape her and gets their dick bitten off, and it, it's. And then, I mean, going back even further in the 1970s, there was a schlocky horror film called I Spit on Your Grave, which, you know, it's about 30 uninterrupted minutes of graphic violence in that film. And that that film is some hot garbage. Uh, It's not it's not really trying to make any greater point at all. So to 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 engage with these horrifying things, but in a way that neither feels exploitative nor uh, nor like just an excuse to exhibit the kind of violence you want to put on screen, I think is it's treading a very careful line. I think this movie managed it pretty well. Uh, Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? Yeah. Do you guys remember Knock Knock? Uh, I don't believe I saw it. Uh, remind me. It's with Keanu Reeves and uh, Ana de Armas, and it's about there are two underage girls that seduce Keanu Reeves because he's a, he's a cheater. He cheats on his wife. Huh. And then basically they hold him hostage and torture him a whole bunch. And I mean, this isn't that film. This Avenger like genre, it is, you know, not without predecessors, but it's certainly really thought provoking and interesting. And I like, I like the color palette. I like the tone. Um, I had issues with some of the character actions and how some of the scenes played out. But overall, I, I thought it was a pretty important film, like Erica said. And, yeah, I want to see kind of more in this, more in this line. Like, I want to see like where this conversation goes. Come to think of it, we actually reviewed another film earlier this year, Gunpowder Heart, the film by Camila Arutia, which is uh, the, the Guatemalan film about. Uh, oh, about yeah. the, I was the, thinking you know, of Gunpowder Heart. Yeah, concocting an elaborate revenge scheme against the uh, against a man who sexually assaulted them in the bushes, and. Yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. There's been a lot of films in this van recently, I suppose. Well, but, I mean, it's because, you know, it's like these these stories are, you know, are 
increasingly coming out and you know that there's a there's a lot to do with them because of how they reflect on you know sort of culture at large and of course there's going to be you know nuance depending even on like you know the country that they're made in so you know an an inevitable movie that i mean for all i know has been made but i am i'm not aware of yet is a documentary film that's all about like the number of you know women and children that are currently you know being held at the us border essentially because of domestic violence and how like now i mean their status is in jeopardy because of like it's it's a football like oh is this a legitimate refugee issue no no they need to be sent back no they need to be sent here etc so you know, there's there's gonna be there's gonna be more of this, and I I mean I look forward to it. I mean it's because there's a lot to be said. It's not just one story; it's many. Yeah, Erica, I've read some about what what you're describing, uh, and it's literally a legal dispute that's been going on. Because yes. of course the Trump administration doesn't they'll they'll look for any excuse to kick out refugees because they just want to kick out as many brown people as they can. But one of the legal uh, one of the legal mechanisms they've attempted to do for this is they have attempted to argue that women seeking asylum on the basis of uh, of being you can seek asylum on the basis of a fear of, of of violence back home, and the violence back home could literally be violence in your home. It could be domestic violence. You could be afraid to be to go home for that reason. And they want to argue that that is not violence that should qualify you uh, for for refugee status. You should have to go home and deal with deal with right. the local authorities on that. The local authorities, who, as you might remember, don't have paper. So yeah, that's a that's a that's a fraught issue. Um, and of course, not everyone involved in it is dealing with it in good faith. It's, you know, it's just Stephen Miller bullshit to a degree, but it is something that eventually we're going to have to figure out a policy on because it's real and it's happening. Well, Stephen Miller is bullshit to a degree, so. Sure is. Well, he just had a little Nazi baby of his own and hopefully uh, she grows up, uh, grows up happy and, uh, and, and just despises everything her parents stand for. I bet her name is Blondie or Liesel. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of Promising Young Woman. If you have any feedback on our discussion, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in to filmwonk.net and have a good night. Bye.